Part two, chapter six of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 1796-1797. Visit to Paris. Finally, we received a letter from Bonnie stating the day that he would await us at Bayonne. And this time we engaged a little collieres to transport ourselves in our baggage. Monsieur de Lavaur, who had received word that his name had been erased from the list of emigres, proposed to accompany us, and we consented, although this was not at all agreeable to us. Monsieur de Chambeau was obliged to remain at Madrid. The tender friendship which he bore us, and of which he had given us many proofs, rendered this separation very painful for him and for us. For a period of three years he had shared all of our vicissitudes, our interests and our troubles. My husband considered him as a brother. During the long years of exile our thoughts had been the same. Thus our departure was a sad blow to our poor friend. He had no money, as no one had thought to send him any. We were happy to be in a position to leave him fifty louis and he was fortunate enough to be welcomed in the house of the Comtesse de Calves, where he remained until 1800. We left Madrid at two o'clock in the afternoon to spend the night at the Escurial. The Collieres was a fine old Berlin, drawn by seven mules, which were conducted, or rather counselled and exhorted, by a coachman seated upon the box and by an assistant postillion armed with a long whip. The latter sprang alternately from one to the other of the mules, who had no bridles, and obeyed only his voice. However, I think that the mules at the pole had reins, but the five others certainly not. One of them, the seventh, marched alone in front. She was named the Generale, and guided all the others. At a quarter of a league from Madrid, the coachman perceived that he had forgotten his mantle. In spite of the stifling heat, he was not willing to go another step before the postillion had gone back to look for it, mounted on one of the mules. This delayed us much, and we reached the Escurial only late in the evening. Nearly all of the following day was consecrated to a visit to this admirable monastery, of which so many descriptions have been written. Among all those which I have read since, none has seemed to me perfectly exact. They do not picture the kind of sad religious calm with which this place, this chef d'oeuvre of all the arts in the midst of a desert, imbues the soul. So many marvellous things seem to have been brought together in this solitude, only to recall to the mind the futility and the inutility of the works of man. Since then, when the events which have distracted Spain have been unrolled before me, I have been struck by the prophecy of the father who showed us the subterranean chapel in which are buried the kings of Spain since Philip II. After having walked through the midst of these tombs, all of which are similar, he called our attention to one which remained empty, that destined for the reigning King Charles IV, and at the same time placing his hand on the sarcophagus, which was kept open by a wedge of marble, he said to us in Italian, Who knows whether he will ever occupy it? 
the moment this remark did not arrest my attention, but long afterwards, when I saw this unfortunate prince chased from his throne, this prophetic speech returned to my mind. Since the discovery of America and of the gold and silver mines of Peru, the kings of Spain have made every year to the Church of the Escorial a magnificent present of these two medals. It thus happens that the treasury of the church has become the richest in all Europe. All of the articles provided by this luxurious custom arranged in order by years testified to an observing eye to the successive deterioration in taste from the first signed by Benvenuto Cellini to the last of very recent date. The top of the high altar, a bas-relief in solid silver, representing the apotheosis of Saint Laurent, patron of the Escurial, although of an unequal to magnificence, was not satisfactory as a work of art. I say was not, for there is reason to suppose that the misfortunes of Spain have led to the destruction of all these masterpieces. The different objects used for the religious worship were arranged in armoire glass made of the finest wood of the East Indies. I have preserved a clear recollection of a sacred ciborium, ciboire, in the form of a map of the world surmounted by a cross, the middle of which was ornamented by an enormous diamond, and the arms with four large pearls. There were also monstrances ostensoire, entirely covered with precious stones. They showed us the ornament du jour de Pâques, made of red velvet embroidered entirely with fine pearls, of different sizes according to the design. Many persons would not perhaps have appreciated this magnificence, for the smallest piece of stuff embossed with silver produced more effect. Nevertheless, there were many million pearls upon these plain pieces of velvet, we ascended to the rude loft, Jubay, where we saw some admirable books of the church formed of leaves of vellum, the margins of which were painted by the pupils of Raphael from his designs. These volumes, in grand infolio, ornamented with corners of silver, bound in a brown skin showing the reverse side, were placed in a kind of open case, separated from one another by slender pieces of wood. On account of their weight, it would have been difficult to take them out of their case. To obviate this inconvenience, there was arranged at the bottom of each of the cases little ivory wheels traversed by iron pins around which they turned. In this manner, the slightest effort was enough to draw one of these books to you. I have never seen this method employed in any other library. In this high gallery of the Escurial, we found the magnificent Christ in silver of life-size, made by Benvenuto Cennini. After having visited and admired this magnificent church, I was left alone, while my husband and Monsieur de Lavour went to visit the monastery and the library, where they saw the beautiful picture of Raphael named La Vierge à la Perle. I had not been informed at Madrid that a woman was not able to visit the library, which was situated in the interior of the monastery, without a special permit.
I regretted this greatly. During the long time that I awaited my travelling companions, I had time for my mind to become lost in many meditations. I thought of the beauty of this edifice, then of the Battle of St. Quentin, lost by the French on the 10th of August, 1557, the fete day of St. Laurent, in commemoration of which the Escorial was built by Philip II, the savage father of Don Carlos. So, when my husband returned and tapped me on the shoulder, saying, Let us go to see the house of the prince, I was almost vexed to have my thoughts disturbed. My son, being only a boy, had accompanied his father, and was very proud to be able to relate to me what he had seen. We then proceeded to this house of the prince, erected by Charles the Fourth while he was prince of the Astorias, and where he retired when the court was at the Escurial to escape from the rigorous Spanish etiquette. It resembled a very elegant little house which a modest broker would hardly be contented with in our day. Pretty furniture, little tables, ornaments of doubtful taste, a quantity of draperies of the most shabby effect gave it the appearance of a petit logis de fille. What a contrast with the admirable church which we had just left. It gave me a very disagreeable impression. Having returned to the inn, we at once set out to go to pass the night at La Granca, where the court was in residence at the royal chateau. Here we were to find dispatches from the American minister, Mr. Rutledge, for his consul at Bayonne. He invited us to supper, and the following day we set out for Zegovie, a very picturesque little city, with the chateau of which we saw only the court, surrounded by arcades in the Moorish style. The remainder of our journey was very uneventful. We remained a day at Victoria to care for the Generala, without whom we could not proceed. Then a day at Burgos, where I went to see the cathedral, and finally we arrived at San Sebastian, where Bonnie awaited us. I felt no pleasure in returning to France. On the contrary, the sufferings which I had endured during the last six months of my sojourn had left in my mind a sentiment of terror and horror which I could not overcome. I thought that my husband was coming back with his fortune lost and that difficult affairs would occupy him disagreeably and that we were condemned to live in a large, devastated chateau where everything had been sold at Le Buil. My mother-in-law was still living she had again entered into possession of Tesson and Omleville. Without any intelligence, very suspicious, very obstinate, in business she had confidence in no one. How much I regretted my farm, my tranquillity. It was with a very heavy heart that I crossed the bridge of the Bedesoa and realised that I was upon the territory of the Republic one and indivisible. We arrived at Bayonne in the evening. Hardly had we entered the inn when two members of the National Guard came to look for Monsieur de la Tour du Pin to take him before the authorities, represented then, it seems to me, by the President of the Department. 
this debut caused me great terror. Accompanied by Bonny, he was conducted before the assembled members of the tribunal. He was questioned as to his opinions, his plans, his actions, the causes and the reasons of his absence and those of his return. He at once perceived that he had been denounced by Monsieur de Roxante and declared so frankly, while stating at the same time how much on the other hand he had to praise in the attitude of the ambassador at Madrid. After a discussion which lasted at least two hours, my husband returned. They had authorised him to continue his route as far as Bordeaux, but armed with a kind of official itinerary in which the stops were indicated, and with the injunction to have this paper visaed at each place. Bonnie left us and returned to Bordeaux by the mail coach. We engaged a wretched driver who conducted us by short journeys. One event only marked our trip. Edmond de Masson, where I called a perruquier to dress my hair, he proposed to me, to my great surprise, to purchase my hair for two hundred francs. He said that blonde wigs were so much the fashion at Paris that he would certainly make a profit of at least a hundred francs if I would consent to sell him my hair. I refused this proposition, you may well believe, but I conceived a great respect for my hair, which was modesty apart, very handsome and very fine at that time. At Bordeaux we found again the excellent Brucon. He had prospered during the war against Spain and was now engaged in providing provisions for our armies in Italy. He received us with the tender friendship which had never for a moment changed. But I was impatient to be at home, and I made arrangements at once with my good Dr. Dupuy, who was to take care of me. Then, the affair of raising the sequestration terminated, we went to Le Bouille to have the seals removed. The first moment, I admit, sorely tried my philosophy. I had left the house very well furnished, and if nothing very elegant was to be found there, at least everything was convenient and in sufficient quantity. I found it absolutely vacant. Not a chair to sit down on, not a table, not a bed. I was on the point of giving way to discouragement, but to complain would have been useless. At the farm we set about unpacking our boxes, which had long since arrived at Bordeaux, and the sight of these simple little pieces of furniture transported to this vast chateau gave rise to many philosophical reflections. The next day many of the inhabitants of Saint-André, ashamed of having purchased our furniture at auction, came to propose to us to resell it for the price which it had cost them. Under these reasonable conditions we again came into possession of those articles which we needed most. One of the things which had the most value was the equipment of our kitchen, which was very fine. It had been transported to a district of Bourg, with the intention of sending it to the Mint. This was resold to us, as well as the library, which had also been deposited in the district. We passed several days very agreeably in placing the books on the shelves, 
and before the arrival of Dr. Pouy, all of our interior arrangements had been finished, and we were as well installed as if we had been at Le Buil for a year. At this moment I experienced a great pleasure. This was the arrival of my dear maid Marguerite. Madame de Valence, when she was released from prison at Paris, had engaged her to take care of her two daughters, but as soon as this excellent maid heard of my return, nothing could prevent her from coming to rejoin me. In spite of the aristocracy of her white apron, she had escaped from the dangers of the terror. She arrived at Le Buil in time to be present at the birth of my dear daughter Charlotte, who was born the 4th of November, 1796. I gave her the name of Charlotte because she was the goddaughter of Monsieur de Chambord. Nevertheless, upon the registry of the commune, she was inscribed under the name of Alex, which consequently was the only name she was able to use legally. When I was up again in the month of December, my husband started to make a circular trip to Tesson, Ambleville and La Roche-Chalet, where there remained to us only some old ruined towers from the 20,000 francs of quit-rent and rents which this land was worth. I remained alone in the large shadow of Le Buire with Marguerite, two servants, and old Biquet, who got drunk every night. The peasants in the farmyard were far away. Only some wretched planks closed the part of the ground floor which was not yet finished. This was the time when troops of brigands called chauffeurs spread terror in all the southern part of France. Every day new horrors were recounted regarding them. I admit to my shame that I was cold with terror. It seems to me that I never in my life passed a time more painful. How much I regretted my farm, my good negroes, and my tranquillity of other days. Our affairs, which were far from taking a favourable turn, also constantly preoccupied me. My husband had been advised not to accept the inheritance of his father except sur bénéfice d'inventaire, that is to say, in reserving the right to verify the charges or costs. Would to God that he had done so, but the sad manner in which we had lost my father-in-law and the profound respect which my husband had for his memory deterred him from adopting this course. This inheritance comprised the estate of Le Buil, several pieces of property in La Roche-Chalet, and our rights to the fortune of my mother-in-law, which had formed part of our marriage contract. I will not enter into the details of our ruin, the recollection of which escapes me now, and which, besides, I have never clearly understood. I only know that at the time of our marriage, my father-in-law was supposed to have an income of 80,000 francs. Without going into further details, it may be said that our loss in all amounted to nearly 60,000 francs of income. To this can be added the house at Saint, a fine dwelling in a perfect state of repair, and which could have been rented for 3,000 francs. The authorities of the department had occupied it, and when at the end of several years it was returned to us, it was in such a state of dilapidation that it had lost its entire value. 
we also lost the furniture of the chateau of tesson which monsieur de montconseil had left to my father-in-law this furniture was sold at the same time as that of le Bouille. that is to say during the months which elapsed between the epoch of the condemnation followed by the execution of my father-in-law and the date of the decree which restored the property of the persons condemned to their children it can be said that it was during this period of several months that nearly all the furniture of the chateau of france had been sold it is necessary however to accept the libraries which after having been transported to the chief places of the district were subsequently restored to their owners these sales struck the most disastrous blow to family souvenirs and it is incontestable that the sudden dispersion of all these souvenirs of the paternal roof contributed strongly to the demoralization of the young noblesse we remained at le Bouille the whole winter and a part of the spring about the month of july seventeen ninety seven my husband recognized the necessity of going to paris to terminate his arrangements with monsieur de lamette as if inspired by presentiment i requested to accompany him madame de montesson who was still full of kindness for me arranged with madame de valence that i should live in her house at paris she herself was established for the summer in the country in a house which she had just purchased near saint denis the six weeks which we expected to pass at paris before returning to le wheel for the harvest of the grapes did not require any great quantity of baggage we therefore transported only what was strictly necessary for us and our children a large number of emigres had returned under borrowed names madame denin who had come back under the name of a milliner of geneva mademoiselle bautier was situated with madame de poix at saint ouen madame de stal protected by barris the director and many others were at paris monsieur de talleyrand had summoned us to come to paris and had particularly urged my husband to come there people had commenced to speak of a counter-revolution in which everybody believed the government had been formed and two assemblies the council of the five hundred and that of the ancients comprised many royalists the salon of barra the influential director of which the duchesse de branca did the honours was full of them and although the other directors did not seem disposed to follow the example of their colleague it is certain that never had the bourbon cause had so much chance of success as at this epoch we set out in a sort of little carriage my husband myself my maid marguerite and our two children humbert seven and a half years of age and charlotte who was only eight months old we passed several days at tesson where we found the chateau in a terrible state of dilapidation they had not only carried off the furniture but had destroyed the papers taken away the locks of many of the doors the blinds of several windows the irons of the kitchen and the bars of the furnaces it was a regular devastation fortunately gregoire had piled upon his bed and those of his wife and daughter as many mattresses as he had been able to save 
and these served as beds for us during our sojourn at Tesson. My emotion was vivid in finding again this good family of Grégoire, who had concealed my husband with so much care and devotion. Before this, in passing by Mirambeau, I had seen the locksmith Potier and his wife, with whom my husband had remained three months, shut up in a hole where there was not enough light to read by. How I again rendered thanks to God that he had permitted him to escape from all the frightful times of the terror. We finally arrived at the end of our journey. Madame de Valence received me with pleasure, and Madame de Montesson, who was not yet in the country, greeted me with a thousand acts of kindness. At Paris, any little thing out of the ordinary always attracts attention. Accordingly, I made a hit immediately on our arrival. As my husband and I were taking supper in the room of Madame de Valence, Monsieur de Talleyrand was announced. He was very glad to see us, and at the end of a moment he said, Eh bien, gouverneur, qu'est-ce que vous comptez faire? What? replied Monsieur de la Tour du Pain with surprise. Mais je viens pour arranger mes affaires. Ah, said Monsieur de Talleyrand, je croyais... Then he changed the conversation and spoke of indifferent matters. Several moments later, addressing Madame de Valence, he began to say, with that air of nonchalance which it is necessary to have seen to understand, à propos, vous savez que le ministère est changé? Les nouveaux ministres sont nommés. Ah, said she, et quels sont-ils? Then, after a moment of hesitation, as if he had forgotten the names and was trying to recall them, he said, Ah oui, voici, un tel à la guerre, un tel à la marine, un tel aux finances, et aux affaires étrangères, said I. Ah, aux affaires étrangères? Eh, mais, moi, sans doute. Then, taking his hat, he went away. We looked at each other, my husband and myself, without surprise. For nothing could be surprising in the case of Monsieur de Talleyrand, except an act on his part of bad taste. He remained eminently the grand seigneur while serving a government composed of the refuse of the rabble. The next day found him established at the office of foreign affairs as if he had occupied this post for the past ten years. The intervention of Madame de Stael, all-powerful at this moment with Benjamin Constant, had made him minister. He had gone to her house and, throwing upon the table his purse, which contained only a few louis, had said, Voilà le reste de ma fortune. Demain, ministre, où je me brûle la cervelle. None of these words were true, but it was dramatic, and Madame de Stael loved that. Besides, the nomination was not difficult to arrange. The directors, and above all Barra, were very much honoured to have such a minister. I will not relate here the history of the 18th Fructidor. You can read it in all the memoirs of the time. The royalists had a great deal of hope, and the different intrigues were mixed up in every sense of the word. Many of the émigrés had returned. They wore the rallying signs. 
all of which were perfectly known to the police, the collar of the coat of black velvet, the knot in I know not what form, in the corner of the handkerchief, and so on. It was by absurdities of this kind that they thought to save France. Madame de Montesson returned from the country expressly to give a dinner to the deputies who were well disposed. Monsieur de Bouchon, our excellent friend, was also one of the hosts of these dinners, where they talked with an unbelievable imprudence. We met again every day, my husband and I, some people of our acquaintance, and the originality of the life which I had led in America, and the desire which I evinced of returning there, rendered me for a month very much in vogue. Madame Denis, our aunt, had returned, as I have already said, under a borrowed name with a Geneva passport. She was living with Madame de Poix, who herself was installed for the duration of the summer in a house which she had borrowed at Saint-Ouen. We went there to pass several days, to the great pleasure of Humbert, who was very much bored at Paris, for he was not able to go out. I also saw Madame de Stahl nearly every day. In spite of her liaison, more than intimate, with Benjamin Constant, she was working for the Royalist Party. You may well believe that my first care on arriving at Paris was to go to see Madame Tallien to whom we owed our life. I found her established in a little house called La Chaumière at the end of the Cour la Reine. She received me with much affection and wished immediately to explain how it happened that she had found herself under the necessity of marrying Tallien, by whom she had a child. Her family life with this new husband already seemed insupportable. Nothing could equal, it seemed, his distrustful and suspicious character. She related to me that one night, when she had returned at one o'clock in the morning, he had such an attack of jealousy that he had been on the point of killing her. Seeing him armed with a pistol, she had taken flight, and had gone to demand asylum and protection from Monsieur Martel, whose life she had saved at Bordeaux, but he had refused to receive her. She wept bitterly in recounting to me this act of ingratitude. Therefore my gratitude, which I expressed with warmth, as indeed I felt it, seemed very sweet to her. Tallien came for a moment to his wife's room. I thanked him quite coldly, and he told me to count on him under all circumstances. You will see later on in what way and in what manner he kept his word. End of part two, chapter six.